today we're going to be talking about acquired brain injury. Um, just a reminder that this is, is, is general advice and, and my opinion and shouldn't be taken as medical guidance. Hello and welcome to the Nirvana Principle Show. I'm your host, Dr. Hassan Malik. I'm a trainee psychiatrist and electronic musician based in Northwest England. I'm passionate about making mental health concepts more accessible to the public, create conversations around psychology, and change perspectives on topics ranging from philosophy to psychedelics, aging to motherhood. I have the privilege of hosting this space on the first Wednesday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on Melodic Distraction Radio. Every episode has a featured guest to share their views, opinions, and expertise with us. Welcome to the show. I was thinking we talk a lot about the evolving mental state and the mental health of those who are struck by social or emotional consequences. I think that sometimes we should also think about those who suffer a change in their psychology from direct injury to the brain. I think it's an interesting facet of psychiatry where an organ containing the mind itself is damaged, uh, much like those who have a heart attack often find their the way they walk, the way they live their life is affected. Um, if you damage your eyes, you lose uh, sight. What happens when individuals lose or damage a part of their brains? Uh, with me here in the studio is a is my colleague, Dr. Zarina Kirk. She's a consultant psychiatrist. She works in secure services and her specialty is neuropsychiatry. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me today. My pleasure. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit about, about yourself? Yeah, I'm Serena Kirk. I'm a neuropsychiatrist, like you've said, working in forensic services. Um, I've been working in the NHS for a very long time, graduated in 1995, she says, under her breath, which makes me very, very old indeed, certainly much older than you are. Um, although I do enjoy your music, though, I have to say, we have that shared interest. Um, so, yeah, I was born and raised in Belfast in Northern Ireland. And that's where I graduated from, from Queen's University in Belfast. Um, but I've been now a resident in England in the Northwest for the past 20 years. Um, so, yeah, that's a little bit about my, my background. The specialty that you're in, neuropsychiatry, I understand that you actually are part of forensic services, which means the interface of psychiatry or psychology with the law. I'm, I'm not really, uh, even today as a trainee, um, I'm not really sure what, what is the role of a forensic services and B neuropsychiatry for mental health. Yeah, well, I guess I could probably go back a little bit to my journey and how I got here, and that might explain where that interface sort of comes from. Sure. So I started off after I did my medical degree. Um, I wanted to do psychiatry, but I was a bit frustrated by psychiatry as well because we didn't seem to focus a lot on the brain and brain functioning. So I applied to do a neurology job, first of all, which is the study of the nervous system, um, looking after people who have um, those types of conditions, like brain injury, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease. And during that rotation, I covered neurosurgery and worked with, there were really some world-class neurosurgeons who were saving people's lives day in, day out, who'd had absolutely horrendous, horrendous accidents. Um, I remember a, a gentleman who'd gone along a road on the roof of his car and basically all of his skull and his um, his scalp had been removed and they saved his life. 
Um, but afterwards, his family, who were very grateful for his life being saved, they were told that their son was ready for discharge. They pulled me over to the side and said, but we can't take him home. They say he's ready to go, but we just can't take him home. And this is because he had become aggressive towards them. He was speaking to them in a way that he had not previously done so, using lots of expletives. He had become sexually very disinhibited, and they were really, really concerned about this change in his personality. But so far as the surgeons were concerned, his life had been saved. He was walking again, he was talking again, he was eating and drinking independently. So he was good to go. And they were bereft, absolutely bereft. And this got me thinking really about that interface between the mind and the brain, people who needed that help and support with the next stage of their journey in their rehabilitation. Um, those often hidden signs, that very loving, caring, compassionate family, we're going to take him home and keep him safe and keep others safe. But, you know, we hear time and time again when people do that and it doesn't work out so positively. Um, that lives are destroyed, families are destroyed because of those changes and alterations in personality. Um, so I then started my research and, and interest into a specialty that could bridge the gap between neurology, which is the brain, and psychiatry, which is the mind. And um, lo and behold, there was a specialty that existed, neuropsychiatry. Um, and we had one neuropsychiatrist in the whole of Northern Ireland. So I got to know him very well and um, started my journey as a, as a neuropsychiatrist. The link between brain injury and offending is really well recognised, um, but often not considered. Um, brain injury is extremely common. So about 1.4 million people last year attended any departments with some sort of head injury. Vast majority of them will have the minor knocks and bumps to the head, maybe lost consciousness very briefly, and will get some head injury advice and go on their way. But about 150,000 people every year will have the severe and life-altering consequences of a traumatic brain injury. So that's people who will have alterations to their living circumstances. They won't be employed again, their family lives will be disrupted. And out of that number as well, you can have an increased likelihood of offending and committing criminal offences. Uh, quite an interesting journey. I think I can I can see that um, we were talking uh, off here as well. And I think it's, you're very keen to help the disenfranchised and those those pockets of people who are kind of lost and and like you say sometimes a lot of the times if for doctors we're viewed as someone who just saves lives and just you know as long as you're alive that's good enough but sometimes the morbidity of it the quality of life is also important yeah i think from my background i was born and raised in a, in a council estate and was written off really in terms of you know having opportunities to you know pursue my interests and, and my potential and the idea of people not being able to meet their potential because of lack of opportunity has really been with me all my life. I took part in the anti-stigma campaign with the, the Royal College back in the, the 1990s, late 1990s. Um, and you're absolutely right. It's, you know, it's looking out for the people who others were maybe pushed to the side, maybe that people are afraid of as well. If you've had a, a brain injury, you, you might look different. You might certainly talk different, 
maybe walking differently, behave differently, maybe in a frightening way because of you know, social disinhibition, maybe not having the same social skills. And then you add in on top of that someone who's committed an offence and you've got some of the most stigmatised people in society. And we know that many of our homeless population also have had a history of brain injury. And, you know, if you're homeless and you have a brain injury, your mortality rate is 17 times that of the rest of the population. 17 times more likely to die young if you're homeless and you have a brain injury. Can you compare that to some something something else? Like uh, how much is 17 times a really high number? For example, I, I think if you're a smoker, then you get you're 20 times more likely to get lung cancer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's, you know, and what if we do? We put labels on cigarettes. We don't allow certain age groups to to um, buy cigarettes um, all sorts of health warnings. And, you know, we have all sorts of public health um, plans and support in terms of smoking and heart disease. But yet for people with brain injuries, because they do happen to affect people from the lower socioeconomic status, people with mental illness more likely to get brain injury, those interventions were sporadic and certainly large variations depending on where in the country you lived as well. I think we should go to a song right now and then we'll come back and we can talk a little bit about the details of acquired brain injury, define it, what it is and how does it affect an individual. Hey pal, how are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm really good. I'm so happy to see you. And uh, you were here on the show seven years ago. There, something happened uh, that I think most people don't know about uh, during that yeah, time. I didn't really tell anyone. It was a car accident that didn't seem bad at the time, but turned out to be really bad. What year was it? It was 2017, July 9th. And um, yeah, I got in this car crash and um, I basically curled up into a ball seeing the car coming and I ended up punching myself in the head and didn't realize right away that I had sustained a very serious concussion or traumatic brain injury. And um, it progressively got worse for almost a year and a half after that because um, there was a lot of things going on that people didn't figure out right away. Like my spinal fluid wasn't pumping properly and backing up into my skull. and. And you're saying that now, you told me in rehearsal, even after a performance, you have to ice your head. I, um, I have to ice it and take down the swelling. Um, my ears start popping, pressure. Sometimes my left eye shuts completely. It's crazy. And, well, yeah. I'm so glad you're back to doing music and that you're able to do anything at all.
Oscar, can you tell me a bit about acquired brain injury? What what, what does that mean? And is there a official definition of it that uh, you can share? Yeah, it basically does what it says in the tin, which is probably why I really quite enjoy the specialty. <laughs> There's no no real mystery or no 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 fancy explanations, but really is any insult or injury to the brain that's occurred after birth. We know that there are lots of diseases and illnesses that can affect a baby in your in the uterus, um, but the specialty of acquired brain injury is our injuries or insults that occur following birth. And um, so, yeah, pretty much anything. So the commonest is traumatic brain injury. So that's a, a blow to the head, which causes an injury to the brain. Um, again, most commonly from that are road traffic accidents, um, sporting injuries um, and, and assaults. Um, but then other types of vascular diseases, as we'd call it, so strokes and brain hemorrhages, and also increasingly um, drug-related um, effects on the brain, alcohol, um, um, other um, illicit drugs as well, and infections of the brain. Um, so the list is pretty much endless, but any disease that can affect the brain um, could be termed an acquired brain injury. So does it include things like, I feel the most common question probably for you is that, is it like a concussion? Yeah, it absolutely is. So concussion is a temporary um, damage to the brain. So that the, the premise of concussion is that you will make a full recovery. There's no long lasting damage. Um, or so we thought. Um, but actually, the more we can research the brains during concussion and the more we know about repeated concussive injuries to the brain, we're seeing longer term effects. And um, yourself and your audience may have heard of um, the, the research that's being done in footballers, rugby players, um, not so much in boxers, because it seems kind of obvious, but chronic traumatic encephalopathy is the very long winded um, pathology that we're finding in the brains of people who've had repeated concussive injuries. Like some of it makes sense, like you said, with, with boxers that, okay, if you get enough blows to the head, you know, it's it's going to mess some something up in there. Um, but the repeated small stress and the long lasting nature of the effects are something which are, uh, I feel not not enough people know about that. No, and the effects can often be subtle and could be put down to, you know, perhaps that sports person at that stage in their career because of the changes in the situation, maybe their mood has become low. And some of the what we call cognitive impairments or changes to the memory or the thinking styles can also be really subtle. Um, and with the support of family and with structure and routine, they may go on recognised for many years until maybe some of those structures or supports change and then the effects can become more obvious. Um, I think there have been a couple of really great movies that have looked at this as well. Um, so, yeah, Will Smith, well, I've become somewhat notorious, um, but he released a movie called Concussion, which, you know, again, does what it says in the tin. It has a really great story um, about American football. Um, and then we have The Journeyman with um, oh, Paddy, oh, I'm going to forget his surname, but anyway, he's a fantastic actor. Um, and he talks about boxing and the, the, the brain injury he had as a result of boxing as well. Um, so, yeah, there's some good movies out there that describe it. So there's a lot of narrative, a lot of talk about sports related brain injury. And there's a lot of goodwill, sort of but always there'll be limits on the interventions because sport attracts a lot of money. Um, and the sportsmen themselves, obviously, if 
they have been diagnosed having a head injury that could be career ending for them. Um, so there's still lots of ongoing conversation and discussion to be had about that. I want to come come back to what you mentioned before, the structure and the things that we can do to help. And you've mentioned these cognitive effects or can, can you break down these cluster of symptoms? Like what can happen? Is it emotional? Is it physical? Is it memory? What, what, what are the consequences of having this injury? All of the above. Very good. You've been listening well <laughs> in work. Um, so basically, the brain is, a, is our most complex um, organ. Um, it uses more energy than any other organ in, in the body. Um, and for good reason, it controls so many of our symptoms. So not just very local things like being able to point a finger or to kick a ball, um, but also those more complex emotions and emotional responses and how we interact with each other as human beings in society. The brain is coordinating all of that. So therefore, whenever you have an injury to the brain, you have the potential to affect um, your physical health and functioning, your emotional health and well-being, um, your, your thinking and your behaviour as well. And that all has an impact on your social functioning. The most common parts of the brain to be injured during a traumatic brain injury is the front bit of your brain. So the frontal lobes, again, does what it says in the tin. You find it where exactly it says you're going to find it, the front bit of your head. And again, it's common sense as well, because it's the front bit of your head that would most usually come into contact with maybe um, a static or a stationary object if you're moving in a car and you're crashing into a wall or if somebody punches you in the head as well. It's usually the front or the side bits of the head, the bit of the head called the temporal lobes. Your frontal lobes are really important. Um, and I was never that interested in geography or even history that much really in school. But um, this is when it's kind of good to look back and look at how we evolved. And whenever we look at, you know, the, the prehistoric, um, prehistoric man, he had really quite underdeveloped frontal lobes. And even looking at animals as well, animals have quite poorly developed frontal lobes. And as we're coming more into how we are as homo sapiens, our frontal lobes have become more complex, more connections and more developed. And um, I always think of the, you know, looking back at the, the shows in the 70s and the 80s, whenever they had aliens, yeah? And um, if you were to ask a kid to draw a picture of an alien, they would draw an alien with these massive frontal bits of their head. Yeah, because, you know, we recognise that there's the front bit of the brain that's continuing to develop. Um, also, the frontal lobe doesn't fully develop in, in people until they're in their mid-20s or there or thereabouts, slightly younger with, with women, but um, around about the mid-20s for men. And the frontal lobes, as I say, are really what makes us human beings who are capable of living with each other in society. So our judgment is coordinated there, um, our thinking styles, being able to read other people's emotions and being able to react to those appropriately. So that's empathy, we call that. Our impulse control, so the natural urges that we have um, because of the other structures in our brain. So the urges um, to, to uh, maintain life, so to, to eat, to, to drink, to recreate. 
um, and to to protect ourselves with our fight and flight and fright and all those things. Um, all of those are controlled through the frontal lobes of the brain. Your frontal lobes are your last bit of resistance to all of those natural urges and drives. And with that being the most commonly injured part of the brain, you can imagine that a disturbance or an injury to that part can lead to not being able to control your impulses or your urges or your drives, not being able to read another person's emotions. So if you're hurting them, not knowing that that is hurting them and not being able to respond to that hurt. Um, maybe saying things because your filter system has, has been knocked off. And we sort of um, describe it as the, the on switch being stuck and the off switch not quite working. So you're, you're saying what you see. And, you know, I frequently have comments on my hairstyle from my patient group. <laughs> Or if I've put on weight, they're the most honest group ever. So I know exactly if I've gained even a couple of pounds, I'll say, oh, you got fat, Dr. Kirk. Um, you know, um, you know and doing that in a hospital setting, that's chill because we know how to respond to that. And we know the reason why. There's no malice behind that. But if you do that, standing in a queue at a checkout, the person in front of you will turn around. And, you know, depending on their circumstances, they might crack you crack you on or at least you might be banned from something and that can lead to all sorts of problems and difficulties. The other bit of the brain that can be really commonly affected is the limbic system and the limbic system is the part of your brain that is really creating these drives and urges for survival. So your fear centers, your emotional outputs and inputs, um, and even just things like your temperature control and regulation, um, your limbic system is really responsible for that. It's essential. Your limbic system is essential um, for sustaining life. And it can be really vulnerable to the effects of not having enough oxygen or of having any, any bruising within the brain, any bleeding within the brain and pressure. So the worst case scenario is someone who has maybe had a knock to their head, which has caused damage to the frontal lobes, but also they've had an episode where there hasn't been enough oxygen getting to the brain. And we might see that in scenarios where perhaps someone has um, you know, stopped breathing after a blow to the head or someone who perhaps sadly has tried to end their life in some way as well. And for those individuals, that completely unfettered, um, uh, you know, expression of emotions and drives, that sort of uncoupling of emotions and, um, and impulses and, and the thinking and reasoning behind that can lead to offending behaviours. I think this would, we can put this into organic psychiatry. Would that be correct? Where it involves physically the brain um, so for me as a student in, in med school or psychiatry, we knew that any symptom that you don't know what could cause it in the, you can always say that brain damage, you can always say that there's some, whether it's hallucinations, whether it's a change in personality, because the brain itself is being affected, the outcomes can be quite variable and quite intense. Oh, I'd go further than that. I'd go much further than that and say that actually our limitations in what we know about the brain is holding back the field of psychiatry in some respects. Um, because we do know that 
you know, children, for example, who've undergone brain trauma at an early age are more likely to develop mental illness as they become older. So is that perhaps as a result of structural damage that's done to the brain or the developing brain that they're more likely to have mental illness? Um, or is it as a constant, you know, the life-changing consequence of brain injury as well? So I think as we get to know more about the brain and our scanning becomes more sophisticated and and also we take more, more leaps of faith in terms of, you know, connecting with um, our colleagues in the other neurosciences, I think we'll learn more about the psychiatric uh, disorders, mental health and how, you know, it relates to, to brain structure. Um, and I think I probably have alluded to you in the past, because I often do, that actually Hippocrates, the, the grandfather of all of medicine, was understanding this back in 400 BC when he was describing epilepsy as both something that was a brain disease, but also was a mental disorder. Um, so he kind of got it way back then. Um, yeah, just doing some research for this show as well, just uh, brushing up, uh, I, I guess. I also was quite surprised to see that some of the first instances of describing psychiatric symptoms or consequences of uh, head injury, or let's say just the psychiatric narrative actually started with brain injury. You mentioned Hippocrates, there's even um, some some documents. I think one of the first mention of brain injury was from, was you know, as you would, in ancient Egypt. And mm -hmm. uh, this uh, gentleman dug up um, something in the one of the pyramids and they found this, this scroll. And all of these hieroglyphs were talking about the consequences or changes after brain injury. Uh, other people, Avicenna or Ibn Sina, also talked about or described in detail the physical and psychiatric consequences of, of brain injury. So I, I, I think it's it's important to understand as well that the, the concept that the mind is actually in the brain or the fact that the brain and the mind are can be like the mind can be an abstract concept. Even that is relatively new. I think around 17th century, um, I think therefore I am Mr. Uh, Descartes. That's probably the wrong pronunciation, but I'll plow ahead anyway. It feels like it's been there forever. Yet yeah. with time, we're all like, okay, so we didn't know this. And uh, there's always some new data information coming out as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think whenever I talk about um, the brain and, you know, the importance of the, of the brain in psychiatry. There you know, there's a little bit of pushback of, you know, what about the mind and, and you know, um, the the experiences people go to and, you know, and I think that's absolutely valid because we know that, you know, trauma does affect brain functioning. There are changes in the neurochemicals in the brain whenever someone experiences trauma. When you say trauma, do you mean like emotional trauma or like actual physical trauma? Emotional trauma. Absolutely, absolutely. You get the stress reactions and stress um, hormones um, that are released during trauma. You have changes in the amygdala, which is the, the bit of the brain that's to do with emotions, and the hippocampus, the bits of the brain to do with memory. Um, and we see it in PTSD as well, and post-traumatic stress disorder, um, where memories are, are very oversimplistically kind of stored in the wrong place and accessed incorrectly in inappropriate times. Um, well, that's got to be something to do with brain, the brain and how it connects, hasn't it? Um, and hopefully what that will do is we learn more about this, that will inform treatments as well. 
um, that psychological interventions absolutely vitally important but those in combined with maybe even more specific treatments for some other con uh, mental health conditions I think you know hopefully will be part of the future in the same way as how we treat diabetes and heart disease now becoming increasingly specific in our treatments. So lots we've talked about lots of things, um, um, covered lots break. of information, so I think it's time for us to go to our next song. Okay. I usually have to do, I go through some like Reddit blogs and things like that just to find if there's any um, acquired brain injury specific songs. So you have um, Mark Almond, you know Mark Almond, the singer? Um, he's, he used to sing in a group called Soft Cell, so soft and then cell as in a blood cell. Yeah. Um, and he had a very significant head injury um, and he's one of the headway um, champions and his music is super cool. And he's done he's a recent release of a song with the Pet Shop Boys, which is kind of cool as well. I like Pet Shop Boys. It's yeah. my era. <laughs> Now we've got one of my favourite artists on performing his brand new single. How can I be sure it's the one, the only, Mark Almond? How can I be sure in a world that's constantly changing? How can I be sure where I stand with you? Whenever I, whenever I am away from you, I want to die, can't you know I want to stay with you, how do I know, maybe you're trying to use me, flying too high and confuse me, touch me but don't take me down Whenever I Whenever I am away from you My alibi Is telling people I don't care for you Maybe I'm just hanging around with my head up Upside down it's a Find someone who's as pretty and lovely as you How can I be sure? I really, really, really want to know I really, really, really want to know
Welcome back to the show. I'm in the studio with uh, Dr. Kirk. We've talked a bit about acquired brain injury, what it is, what are the symptoms and how does it how does it affect individuals who are affected by it? I was quite struck that the just looking at some of the facts and figures that the leading cause of uh, morbidity and mortality that's like changes in life and and death for for children in the UK is actually acquired brain injury. Can you tell me a bit about how the age groups that you work with do you see a lot of children is that is that something which is an important facet of neuropsychiatry? Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. It's super important. Um, I work only with adults of working age um, and resort, specialist resources. So neuropsychiatry for children is very, very difficult to come by despite how common the problem is. Um, and this was actually recognised by the government Um in the Time for Change review that was published in in 2018, um, when they acknowledged that, first of all, brain injury is extremely common. Um, Secondly, that the physical rehabilitation is prioritised, often to the detriment of looking at the the social development and the emotional and behavioural changes following a brain injury in children. And we do know that kids who've had a brain injury are more likely to drop out of school, so not complete their education, more likely to be in pupil referral units, uh, more likely to use drugs at an earlier age, and to underachieve compared to their, their siblings. And that's kind of regardless of the severity of the brain injury. And I don't mean just to use you know, knocks to the head, um, all of my children have had in the past, but um, for kids who have required a hospital stay for a brain injury, Um, And we also know that there are lots of kids who've had head injuries who've never come to the attention of hospitals either um, because of their their social situations, children who've been abused um, physically. Um, So it's a really, I mean, it's it's so common, so prolific um, that every school is going to have a pupil in probably in each class who's had really quite a significant head injury. so the good thing is recognised by the government now. So it's part of the, the ABI strategy going forward um, as identified for the time for change. Um, but also there are some really fantastic organisations who are really driving the research and provision of support. So um, the Children's Brain Injury Trust, CBIT, are absolutely fantastic and a really great resource, not just for um, young people themselves who've had the brain injury, for the parents and carers, but also for professionals um, um, as they provide training courses. Um, And I think from, in my area, my area that I work in forensic services, we're always looking at prevention being much better than cure particularly whenever it comes to offending, because with offending, there's a victim, yeah? Um, So whenever we're looking at prevention strategies, um, it's not just about preventing the head injury from happening in the first place, which would be marvellous, but also trying to identify those young people who have had a head injury who are at a higher likelihood of later committing offences. We've talked about before that there are specific areas of the brain to do with aggression, to do with empathy, of realizing the consequence of your, consequences of your actions. 
can you tell me a bit about the criminal aspects of acquired brain injury? For for example, I think in, in prison populations, they've done a few studies where they've shown mm-hmm. that, I uh, don't quote me on this, but I think it was up to 60% of like violent offenses, they had some some history of having a severe brain trauma or losing consciousness after having a blow to the head. You would think in both of these populations, we're talking about children as well as prisoners, that kids are more likely to find themselves in situations where they might hurt themselves, they're still learning if violence is part of your life as as a or if, if you're involved in criminal activity, more likely to receive a knock to the head or have some kind of physical injury to you. What do you think comes comes first? Do you think do you think that it's chicken or the egg? Yes, <laughs> is what you're asking. Yes. it's multifactorial, isn't it? So in my service, we look after young men primarily um, who have had both scenarios. Um, that well, actually, all three scenarios: some who have had the head injury as as a, as a young person, as a child, onto the age of five who have really fallen out of the education system and um, have, you know, got into then, a, a, you know, a peer group who would be less than supportive, let's just say, perhaps accessing substances um, and then gone into a life of crime and then maybe even had a further head injury. Um, so, you know, fairly common scenario in our setting. But we've also got young people who have, lived a very normal life, if there's such a thing. Um, can think of a few examples of people who were um, in university and they've had an accident while they've been there. Um, classically, a fall on a night out or been involved in a road traffic accident. And with no previous offending history in a family who've not known anything really about the criminal justice system, never had any contact with them, and the alteration in their personality has been such that they have committed an offence based on, again, that unfettered um, impulses, urges and drives. And most commonly in those cases, it's sexual offending or repeated acquisitive offending, as we call it. So robbery, stealing, um, usually very opportunistic. Yeah, we see we see the whole range. Um, And we've known about the association between brain injury and offending for a very long time. The very, very first case of not guilty by reason of insanity um, was somebody who'd had a head injury. Yeah. And that was somebody who tried to assassinate. I think it was King George III. So, yeah, way back, I think it was um, in the 1700s, early 1800s. Um, So we've known about this for a very long time. And there have been studies throughout the 80s and the 90s looking at epilepsy in prisons and brain injury in prisons. But the most recent ones, you're absolutely right, you haven't misquoted it, it was 60%, was in a prison in Leeds, HMP Leeds. Um, They looked at 200 200 prisoners and 60% had been found to have a a serious acquired brain injury. Um, But usually the working figure that we have um, is about 40% couple of questions actually that I'm thinking about one of them would be the injury has happened Mm. and the consequences of that whether it's legal emotional physical etc have also happened or are going on as well how do you help someone and how do you advocate for someone who 
might be breaking the law simply because of an illness? What a great question. And actually, it's a question that we ask every time we go to assess someone and we go to admit somebody, what are the goals for this person? What are we actually hoping to achieve? And then we have to turn that on our head, on, on its head and think, well, what does that person want? Because actually that's the important thing, isn't it? And then whenever it comes to offending, having to meet somewhere in the middle that's safe. Um, so the goals of the criminal justice system fairly straightforward aren't they so it's punishing for the crime that's been committed and rehabilitation now unfortunately prison service for the best will in the world is not the ideal environment to provide rehabilitation at the best of times never mind if you have an acquired brain injury um, and particularly during the past two years when prisoners have been locked up in their cells for 23 hours a day um, very little access to any structured activity, limited access to mental health support. Um, you know, if they have complex brain injury with epilepsy, not getting medications on time, um, no contact with family members, there's no opportunity for rehabilitation from your brain injury. And we see with people who've had a brain injury in the criminal justice system, they're more likely to be repeat offenders. So they might be identified as needing some interventions like sex offender programs or um, anger management programs, but they're expected to attend those programs, to do the homework in between, to recall what's happened in a past session and to use that in the next session. And if you have a head injury and you've got memory problems, maybe processing speed problems, you just can't engage with that in a meaningful way. And so that results in longer sentences, people not being able to get through parole hearings, not you know being seen as being difficult or, or bothersome, um, ending up in segregation because they're reacting to the, the high levels of noise and stimulus around them. So you have these longer sentences and you have the repeat offending. And just to put it bluntly, the government recognised that this was high cost. So high cost in terms of the British pound, um, never mind the high cost to society. What kind of outcomes would you say is ideal for your patient group? Um, I, I feel like we're talking about required brain injury, but the forensic part just kind of attracts okay. me. There's a soft gravity to it. Um, so someone, like you mentioned, there they you know committed an offence, and the as per the criminal justice system, they've you know, they've been punished for it and they are, uh, they've gone to prison or someone like yourself said that, okay, no, they actually had a brain injury. That's why this happened and need to be assessed or they need to be treated. What happens afterward? Like, do your patients go back into the community? Do Like, what is, let's say, an example of a good outcome, both for the individual, for us as treating people and for society as well? The ideal outcome is that obviously somebody would not come into contact with the criminal justice system. So even if they have committed an offence, the earlier they can be diverted to a hospital for treatment and for rehabilitation, absolutely the better, particularly in those early years following a brain injury. So being able to provide 
neurorehabilitation to somebody within those first two years has absolutely the best outcome. The outcome that we would like to achieve is that there's no further offending, right? That ultimately, that's why we exist and that's why the criminal justice system exists, so that there's no further offending, that that person will be able to live in an integrated way back in normal society. There are lots of confounders to that though, and that's to do with personal choice, isn't it? So we can provide rehabilitation, we can provide support networks around, but some people don't want to engage in that. They, you know, that's not their life, was never their life before their head injury, before they committed the offence, and they don't want to live that way afterwards either. So for the best will in the world, there will always be some people who will return to offending. And sad to say that the biggest confounder of all is drugs and alcohol and the influence that has on people's brain functioning and on the decision making that they have. So after a brain injury, you're more susceptible to the effects of drugs and alcohol. You mentioned um, rehabilitation. So what, what do you mean by that rehabilitation of someone with a brain injury? So... The brain is a marvellous organ. I do, I do love it. I mean, who doesn't love the brain? I mean, the heart's all right, but the brain's even better, right? Um, well, my stomach gets more exercise than any other organ in my body, I would say. But anyway, um, so it's a fantastic um, machine and it's capable of repair. Um, not necessarily back to its previous level of functioning, but it can adapt. And that's because of the wonderful connections and the connectivity in the brain. And um, no one bit of the brain works as an island. Yeah. And therefore we can train and train other bits of the brain to try and do some of the functioning that the bit of the brain that's been injured was doing. And if we can't do that, then we can explore what changes need to be made to that person's environment to help that brain, that injured brain to function better. Um, and that's really the basis of the rehabilitation that we use within our service in forensic brain injury rehab. So it's called neurocognitive and neurobehavioral rehabilitation. So it's looking at the thinking and it's looking at the behaviors. And whenever it comes to offending, it's that behavior bit is a real focus of attention because if the challenging behaviour is the risk behaviour and that's what we really need to be um, ensuring is um, there is a strategy in place to ensure the safety of the public. We've talked about treatment, we've talked about symptoms and I guess the current status across age groups as well. Can I ask you about uh, diagnosis? for someone, let's say, unfortunately, bang their head somewhere. So should they be concerned? Should they go go to their GP and say, hey, I heard this podcast and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I might, might have a acquired brain injury. Can, can you help? How, uh, how urgent is, is seeking help as well? Yeah. So diagnosing head injury, absolutely right. So most people will come to us and we know that there has been a history of a head injury. There's been a, probably a brain scan, an incident has happened, there's been a brain scan that can see the damage caused to the brain. Sometimes actually brain scans are completely normal following a brain injury, depending on the type of the brain injury. And with that, it is by taking a really good history from that person. And um, as I 
trainer in psychiatry, um, I can say that we don't ask enough about brain injury as psychiatrists, despite how common it is. And the the fact that it can it affects the brain, the very organ that we're, we're looking after as psychiatrists, we don't ask enough about it. And I've become acutely aware of that whenever it comes to people who are suffering from depression or who are suicidal. Because suicidal thinking and depression is extremely common following a brain injury, and not just as a consequence of the life changes, but also due to structural changes in the brain the hypothalamus in particular. So we don't ask enough about it. So in terms of when should we kind of be suspicious that maybe somebody's had a brain injury and that might be causing the problems, if the symptoms don't quite fit our usual understanding of a psychiatric condition of a mental health disorder, then we need to be suspicious. We need to be suspicious and just dig a little bit deeper in terms of asking those questions about childhood trauma, about any injuries to the head, and not forgetting those repeated minor blows to the head as well. I'm going to divert just a tiny bit because I think it's important to bring up a particular group of people for whom this is especially relevant, and that's women. And so we have seen a real spike in domestic violence. Um, particularly towards women, not always, but particularly towards women in recent years. And we know over lockdown that increased even more. And often these are women who don't come to hospital for treatment. They receive a blow to the head, knocked out, and it happens repeatedly. Um, They're prevented from seeking help or they're embarrassed or afraid to seek help because of the consequences of that and what that might happen, what might happen to their families. And over time, those women can present then with changes in the thinking, changes in their emotions, changes in their behaviour. And actually coming back to forensic um, psychiatry again, we see high proportions of women in female prisons, fantastic study done in Scottish women's prisons, who um, have had head injuries, and the majority of them, their head injuries were caused by domestic violence. So there's another group of people who we could prevent not only their offending, um, but also the trajectory into mental health services as well, if we identify and um, provide resources for those women who've had injuries. Uh, I mean, the way the way you're describing or, or the course for our conversation, it almost sounds like a silent epidemic, almost. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, I think that phrase was, was used within the all-party parliamentary group. It's absolutely an epidemic brain injury. And the silent bit of it is, is, is totally, totally correct. And we describe it like an iceberg. We see the people who have the most severe, the most prominent head injuries, but actually in society, like with many conditions, um, you know, addictions very similarly as well. Um, there's lots of insidious symptoms of, of brain injury, which can be seen just as, you know, extreme versions of, of normal, normal variant, you know, somebody slightly more outspoken or somebody's, you know, slightly more, you know, sexually disinhibited, or, um, you know, um, so it often goes um, underdiagnosed. diagnosed 
I've gone through pretty much everything I had to ask. Uh, do you think there's anything in particular we've uh, missed out that you want to talk about? No, no, not really. Um, I suppose from my point of view, just um, let's just talk about brain injury, you know, and just being being aware of it. And I think also as well that the government stuff that's happening in the minute that at the minute that's really started from people who have been passionate um, people who have lived experience of brain injury who have gone through the consequences of it who've learned lessons from it and they've just kept knocking at the door of number 10 kept talking to their mps and i do say this a lot to our psychiatry trainees as well use your standing in society your your position to influence change um, and we don't take our standing for granted at all here coming from my humble background i i see this as a privilege as an honor to do what i do and so i like to live every day with that in mind that this is a privilege and and it's one that i don't take lightly uh, so, Dr. Kirk, in any if someone wants to get in touch with you, what would be a good way to do that? So, um, social media wise, I'm on Twitter. Um, so that's at Zarina Kirk. So, yeah, I've got um, dodgy spelling of a name. So it's C-Z-A-R-I-N-A-K-I-R-K, all lowercase. Um, so that's probably the best way to reach me either through um, direct message or um, just tag me. That would be cool. So, Dr. Kirk, you've been very kind to share your time uh, with us today. And I, I feel that the least I could do is uh, offer you a song on today's playlist. Um, feel free. Anything that you recommend, anything you want to hear. Oh, my goodness. You really don't want to play my my music um, on air. It would totally spoil your show. I'm a massive Eurovision fan. The cheesier, the better. Last year, the Iceland song. Probably that's one you might be able to play in your show because it won't offend people's ears too much. But I do have a secret penchant for the Ukrainian entry from last year as well. So it's called Shum by Go A. And I absolutely adore it. No idea what it means. Could mean anything at all. But it's my go-to for exercising, which clearly I don't do very often. <laughs> might find a co-fan or two from the listening audience <laughs> or maybe both of us would get into really trouble. <laughs>